From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. This is not Tony Perkins. This is Joseph Backholm, and I am a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement here at the Family Research Council, sitting in for Tony today, who is uh, taking a much-deserved break. But we've got a great lineup for you today. There's a lot of news over the weekend that we are going to cover today. We're going to start off by talking about the vaccine, whether it is the solution to all of our problems. We hope that it is, uh, but we're going to discuss that. Then we're going to be talking about, with the holidays coming up, and all of these new mandates for you to be canceling not only Thanksgiving, but some indication that you should cancel Christmas as well. How should we be thinking about this theologically? And then we're going to give an update on Target banning a book, then not banning a book. The Oxford Dictionary has redefined the word woman, of course. And uh, how did they do that and why did they do that? We're also going to get updates on lawsuits in Georgia and Pennsylvania as the uh, presidential election continues to roll on kind of. And then we'll finish by talking about the what we can learn from the donation patterns to the presidential races. Who gave to Trump? Who gave to Biden? Professionally speaking, what professions gave more to each of these candidates and what does that mean for us moving forward? But to start it off today, we are going to talk about this vaccine news. We now have, uh, we think, two vaccines on the verge of being released. Uh, what does this mean for us? Is this going to bring this COVID uh, lockdown, COVID uh, era of our lives to an end uh, Soon, we hope. But in order to have this conversation, we're going to bring in Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. But not only is he an MD, he has a Ph.D. in economics as well. And he has a lot to say about uh, this, how we have been responding to the vaccine. Uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you for joining us today on Washington Watch. Oh, Thank you for having me. Well, we are thrilled to have you, and and I just want to start off this conversation because by by setting the setting the stage a little bit, because you were the signer of something called the Great Barrington Declaration, and there are now thirty four thousand scientists and medical professionals who have signed this declaration that basically is offering a critique of how we've been responding to COVID. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, what that means, and and why you decided to join that? Sure. So the, the, the idea behind the, that, that declaration is that the COVID policy we've been following has in many ways led to worse outcomes for both COVID and non-COVID outcomes. Uh, the lockdowns have been devastating, both domestically and internationally. So, uh, for instance, just to, just to pick a couple of statistics, um, one, a one in four young adults in the United States seriously considered suicide this June, in part because of the lockdowns. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a great tragedy when a young person considers suicide. And so, I mean, that just, just think about the psychological stress involved there. Um, people have skipped cancer treatments. People have skipped cancer screening. Uh, devastating health effects of the lockdowns domestically. Internationally, uh, the, the hit to GDP, to, to GDP, which sounds like it's just money, but actually there's many, many people worldwide who are at the brink of starvation. The UN estimates that it will be 130 million additional people who will starve this year as a consequence of the economic hits from the lockdowns. So the lockdowns are devastating um, yeah. first. Well, that that is, I mean, that's... Very concerning. And I think that those of us in the United States who have been following this, we kind of see this from our Western context and our Western world. And and we see that, you know, it, it's tough for us, but we've never lived in a developing country. Now, I also think I'm I'm going to assume about, I assume the best about everybody's motives as you as we re respond to this. And I don't think anybody wants that to happen. I don't think anybody's saying, hey, we need to do this because we're going to cause mass devastation in the developing world. Is this information that you're sharing with us, is this generally known? Is it something that people aren't taking into account, or are they just weighing other factors differently? I, I, I saw this uh, reported in the news in April, um, that 130 million figure, and that devastated me. I mean, I, I think this should be something that should be trumpeted alongside the, the, the count of COVID cases, you know, how many people are starving this year relative to previous years. That, that's a, that's, those, those lives matter. I don't know why that hasn't been a central focus of this. Um, 
for those of, of, for those of us who may not understand how that works, can you make that connection, connect the dots for us between what is happening in COVID responses from governments and how that leads to an increase in starvation for people around the globe? It's it's a little it's it may seem complicated, but you can think of it as very simple. Like if you have a, someone who's living on two or three dollars a day, even a small hit to their uh, economic fortune can put them over over the brink into starvation. And what we're talking about is a, a global economic collapse on a scale not seen in a very, very long time. Um, as a consequence of, the lo- of not just COVID itself, but the lockdowns themselves have created that, uh, that problem. Um, so you can just, you know, it doesn't take a lot of, a lot of hit to, uh, to the economy of a developing country to push a lot of people into a place where they can no longer feed themselves. Um, that's really what's what's going on there, and, and that happens in a lot of places where they don't have a, I suppose yeah. they don't have a, a, a political or a government safety net that allows them to, you know, that picks up any of that slack, and so they just and, and, and actually the the, uh, the the price of food goes up as as people are less able to uh, to uh, farm. The tra- international trade sort of starts to shut down, which then increases the price of food. There's all kinds of mechanisms that can go into that, but uh, but the upshot is the lockdowns cause are at least partly responsible for this kind of devastating harm. So that's 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 the first part of the thinking of the Great Barrington Declaration. Lockdowns are devastating. Shouldn't do it shouldn't do it unless you have absolutely no choice. So what's the second part? Second part is we know who's vulnerable to COVID. It's there's a thousand times difference between someone who's older or has chronic conditions and someone who's younger in terms of the mortality risk. For someone who's under 70, the more the survival rate from COVID infection if you get infected is 99 0.95%. That's really high survival. It's like it's on the order of if you if you drive 30,000 miles a year, you face the same kind of mortality risk. Um, if you, on the other hand, someone who's over 70 or even let's say over 60 and has some chronic conditions, there the, the risk of COVID, death from COVID is much higher. So the survival rate's only 95%. So what's the right response there? Do everything you can to protect the vulnerable. Protect the people we know to be vulnerable. In nursing homes, protect nursing homes. In uh, if, if you have older people living alone, maybe have gross, groceries delivered to them. Um, if you if you're for a 63 year old uh, clerk who's uh, with diabetes, well, use disability law so that they can n- not be required to report to work in a place where they they're, they're going to be exposed to COVID, but do alternate alternate arrangements so that they can um, you know have some kind of like a, a, a way to feed their family and without being exposed to COVID. Th- those kinds of ideas, focus protection ideas. Um, those that's those are the two major pieces of the Great Parenting Declaration: protect the vulnerable and the lockdowns. Well, thank um, you for doing it, and and I know that there is, um, and as there should be, a robust debate about this within the within the science community about what's the right way to do this. And I, I'm not sure if uh, we are learning or not, because it seems that since February or whenever this started, kind of the the instinct has been to lock down and that's kind of how politicians have been handling this generally and even as we as we peer into another set of lockdowns that in in certain states have have already been uh, are beginning to be implemented um, it doesn't seem to be that different than what we were doing back in the in the spring and I, and I wonder if that's um, do you think that's because they, they are seeing different information are people evaluating this differently are the politicians not learning are they learning different things I, mean, I think some politicians are learning and some politicians are not. I mean, I think uh, the, 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 the opposition to the lockdowns is much more now than it was in the spring. I've seen several governors say that they're not going to lock their 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 their, their societies down, or their, their states down. And, of course, there's, there's some that have. I, I think um, uh, it's much more politically fraught to argue for lockdowns than it was in the spring, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Now let's let's talk a little bit about these vaccines, um, because we have another announcement today that uh, we, we now have Pfizer and Moderna, I think, who have come out and said that we have vaccines that are um, effective, and the stock market likes it. Um, we've we've seen Dr. Fauci say that this is promising. Um, tell us what you think about what do you make of the of the vaccine news? How encouraged should we be? I am very encouraged, and I agree with Dr. Fauci in that, in that, in that at least, that it is very, very uh, promising news. Um, two vaccines, that over 90% effective, both of them, is fantastic news. And the, but the question is, how should we use them? Um, one way, one thought 
I think is the wrong thought is, well, uh, we, we won't have enough doses to, to uh, provide the vaccine to everyone until, you know, nine, six, six to nine months from now. Let's wait and lock down until then and then, give, give, then open up after the vaccine is, is widely deployed. I think the problem there is the lockdown harms will end up killing more people than, than the, the, the lives we'd save from, from, from that strategy from COVID. Okay. Um, so I, th- I think that's a bad strategy. Uh, another strategy is use the vaccine for focus protection. Uh, the, the, the Trump administration has invested you know, a huge amount of money to develop, uh, you know, I think something on the order of 70 to 100 million doses. Uh, 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 so, 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 70, so basically you need to take the vaccine twice. So about 35 million people or 40 million people already could be vaccinated if the FDA decides it's safe um, uh, within the next three months, two, three months. Then you could use it to protect older people, vaccinate older people, protect them from getting infected because as we know that's who faces the greatest risk right. and then end the lockdown. It's a perfect tool for focus protection. How is this going to be implemented? Uh, do you think in your, in your experience, and I know that you're not part of the government, so you're not necessarily making those decisions for us, but it, it, to the extent that you can help us understand how is this going to be rolled out? Like who's going to distribute it? Who, what, what's the, um, priority that is established for who gets it and when if somebody wants to get it what do they need to do in order to get on a list and 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 get the vaccine i mean those are decisions that the government still has to make actually so uh what 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 we what do we have so the 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 trump administration basically invested an enormous amount of money to to produce the vaccine at scale even before it was evaluated that's what operation warp speed did Mm -hmm. so we have 70 million doses of like basically with, we can we can vaccinate 35 million people almost immediately as soon as the FDA says yes. The question is who do we use them on? Who do we use those doses on? Right. If we use those doses on on people who are vulnerable, I think we could end the epidemic. We we use them and the, in this and the idea is focus protection. Yeah. We use them to protect the vulnerable and then open up and lift the lockdown. People will, the, the disease will still spread, but only in a, in a population that's very low risk from, from mortality from it. So is, is, the, is the vulnerable population identifiable enough that you could take that 30, 35 million vaccine dosage and get it directly to the people who need it most? Yes. So like the single most important variable is age. So like a very simple policy way to do this is uh, provide the vaccine to everyone who is elderly with, through the Medicare system, through, through Medicare insurance. Um, so if you have Medicare, you get it for free. And uh, essentially, you've protected the vast majority of the vulnerable. There'll still be some folks who, with chronic conditions that are under 65 that we'll still have to th- think deeply about how to protect. But we have a, we've already thought a lot about that, like how to protect people like that. And we just discussed some of the strategies we could use for that. So, that, so it's, it's not like it would completely end the epidemic, but it would, it would really go a long way. Well, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for your, your time and your thoughtfulness and, and your willingness to... Uh, to keep us informed because a lot of us don't know who to trust and don't know what's true. Uh, but this has been a very helpful conversation. And uh, like you, I hope that we can be encouraged and we will see an end uh, at the uh, light at the end of this particular tunnel. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Stick with us after the break. We're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk Thanksgiving. We're going to talk Christmas. We're going to talk church. Do you have to cancel because the governor tells you to? We'll be discussing this and more on the other side of the break. Stay with us. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? 
Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the program. Joseph Backholm in for Tony Perkins today here on Washington Watch. As coronavirus cases increase in some parts of the country, we see governors and politicians responding to this increase with a new set of restrictions. We've seen um, conversations on the West Coast in Washington and in California where governors are saying, well, we're going to highly regulate what happens for Christmas. In the state of Ohio, Governor DeWine uh, came out with a list of regulations that including a prohibition on dancing, of all things. Now, this has been an interesting and historic restriction on civil liberties in light of this pandemic. And Justice Samuel Alito, who's one of the uh, members of our illustrious Supreme Court made some comments about what we're experiencing with coronavirus in a speech to the Federalist Society recently. It's gotten a lot of attention. Let's take a listen to this clip. All that I'm saying is this, and I think it is an indisputable statement of fact. We have never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged as those experienced for most of 2020. Think of all the live events that would otherwise be protected by the right to freedom of speech. The COVID crisis has served as a sort of constitutional stress test, and in doing so, it has highlighted disturbing trends that were already present before the virus struck. So Justice Alito points out the civil liberties concerns. But for Christians, we don't just think about this in terms of civil liberties and what does the Constitution forbid the government to do and allow us to do. There's also this dynamic of how do we interpret, how do we walk through this scenario theologically. And to help us with that conversation, I'm going to bring in my friend David Clausen, who is the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview here at the Family Research Council. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Joseph. Well, it's always a pleasure. Help us with this, because you are a uh, the director of Christian Ethics, and this is something that we hope you understand and can illuminate for us, because we know that Romans 13 tells Christians that they are to be subject to the governing authorities. Does that mean 
that when governors say you can't go to church, you can't have Thanksgiving, you can't celebrate Christmas, you can't dance, that Christians are then obligated to abide by those restrictions in every case? That's a good question, Joseph, and I I don't think so. Now, uh, as a Baptist, I might actually be fine with the prohibition on dancing, but... Well, did you put him up to that? I I, I could have, but, you know... (laughs) I do think it's important, though, Joseph, when you're because you're absolutely right to highlight Romans 13, and it commands us to obey the governing authorities, uh, which God has put in, in place. And so I think all these there's a bunch of considerations here: protecting the health of our worshipers, uh, the public witness of the church, uh, the spiritual and physical needs of our members, uh, complying with government mandates. All of that needs to, I think, be uh, part of the conversation. But I do think, uh, especially uh, as Christians who are, are supposed to take things uh, captive of the Word of God, we do need to remember that ultimately Jesus is Lord of the church. We must obey God rather than man, ultimately. And so I'm thinking specifically with a lot of these mandates, a lot of these restrictions, and what we've seen during the pandemic, unfortunately, is that governments are not treating churches fairly. And so, you know, I, I do think there, there, there's no one-size-fits-all policy that we can apply. That, that's why I think, and I talked to a pastor this morning, I think each congregation, each pastor has to make a decision, uh, really what's in the best interest of their church based on what's happening in their local communities. Um, and, again, when these restrictions, I saw new restrictions came out today in different states. And, again, if, if these are not being applied fairly across the board, I think we have a major issue um, constitutionally but even theologically as, as Christians. I, I think that's an important point, you know, and when it comes to whether the church should gather. And that's been one of the primary flashpoint debates for Christians is the rules that that state governments and mostly governors have have decreed saying that churches are not allowed to gather. In some cases, you're not allowed to gather at all. And in some cases, oh, you're only allowed to have 25 or 50 people in your building or nobody in your building. You have to meet in the parking lot. And and I have seen the argument that, well, we are subject to the government and there are government and God put them there. And therefore, we have to uh, abide by this. Now, our American context tells us that, well, someday the pandemic is going to end. And so these restrictions will go away and then we'll be able to go back to how life was before. But when I think about Christians in other parts of the world, and I think about China and the underground church and places where the government has said, you can't ever meet because we perceive your existence to be a threat to our governmental authority. Um, How does that, does that inform, is that context matter to us as we think about this? Or should we as Americans just think, well, it's going to be over one day and things are going to go back to normal so we can just go along to get along for now? I think what you see, you're right to point that out, Joseph, that across across the globe you see persecuted Christians uh, facing a different set of circumstances uh, than we do. And so, you know, I think they have to make a different calculation. But in this country with a constitution where we have protected civil liberties, where religious liberty under the free exercise clause is literally our first freedom, uh, I think, you know, it's just really important for Christians to press the case that we are treated fairly. I was looking at some of the new orders that came out yesterday. Um, the New York governor, uh, specifically with his executive order, limiting worship services to 10 people in certain areas of the state, whereas supermarkets, pet stores, hardware stores are allowed much more latitude. And, of course, I'm not upset that hardware stores are allowed to be open. I think you know businesses should be allowed to make their own decisions. But, again, that unfair treatment, uh, when it's obvious, that, that's what's concerning. You, you played the remarks from Justice Alito and in that same speech he gave at the Federalist Society last week, he pointed out what I think was the most egregious uh, example of unfair treatment, which was from Nevada this summer, where casinos were allowed to open, you know, operate up to 50% of their fire code capacities, where houses of worship were subject to a flat 50-person limit. But one other thing I'll add, you know, as Christians, we don't take our marching orders even from the Constitution. We take it from God's Word, where we are commanded to meet together. And I think that's what we need to remember. That's a great point. David Clausen, Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, thank you so much for joining us. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. That is Jesus' commands. And so when the governor tells you you can't do something that Jesus requires you to do, you have to go with Jesus. On the other side of the break, we'll talk to Peter Sprigg about books that have been banned and then not banned. And have we redefined woman again? 
Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm, guest hosting, filling in inadequately for sure, but filling in for Tony Perkins here on Washington Watch. Last Friday, at the end of the week, we covered a story that has an update, and we talked about Target, our our favorite, infamously favorite uh, retail store, Target who had banned Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. And we talked about their decision to take that book off of their shelves and off of their website and not sell it. But we have an update on that because they apparently have changed course. And to help us uh, have this conversation, I'd like to welcome in my friend Peter Sprague, Senior Fellow for Policy Studies here at FRC. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Joseph. Good to be with you. So tell us, should we be mad at Target or should we be pleased with Target? <laughs> well, it was a, a very sudden reversal, actually, and I'm, I'm impressed. We should be, I guess we should be happy that they uh, reversed themselves so quickly, but it illustrates a problem, I think. You know, we, we, we hear this term cancel culture, and that was um, really what Abigail Schreier's book was a victim of. Uh, there was uh, basically... Uh, I don't know if there were more than one complaint, but it, it, sometimes it's just one complaint is enough on social media for uh, corporations like Target to just respond. For those, for those who may not know, just uh, very briefly, what does the book say and why would people be bothered by it? Why would it get canceled? Well, uh, this is a, a book about um, the transgender issue, but it's actually about a specific phenomenon uh, that is happening um, referred to as uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, where young people, almost all girls, uh, who have not experienced gender dysphoria in childhood, are suddenly in adolescence um, declaring themselves to be transgender. And this is often, there is a, a large element of peer influence, peer pressure, where a whole friend group will do this all at once, and also an element of uh, uh, influence from the internet, from social media and the internet. So why why does that bother them? Well, it bothers transgender activists because they don't want to have anybody calling into question anyone who claims to be transgender. And uh, the idea that somehow this is a, a phenomenon that is anything other than a legitimate expression of their true and inner identity is, uh, is offensive to them. Uh, part of the thing that's ironic is Abigail Schreier is not a social conservative. 
She is a journalist. She is not a Christian. So she, she's not a bigot like us. She, <laughs> she's not one. So people are supposed to listen to her. Well, she's not one of us. That and but she is a serious journalist who was intrigued by this phenomenon and decided to research it. And she's written about it. And she's alarmed at at, at what she found out. So. Um, Transgender activists complained. They don't like her book, and they complained. And Target responded like instantaneously by saying, oh, we're so sorry. Uh, we've removed that from our list. Well, then, fortunately, apparently some conserv- there was conservative backlash to the banning of the book, and uh, they quickly reversed themselves. So is this a case of the unwoke mob beating the woke mob? It seems to be a rare example of that uh, happening. Now, I think part of it may be uh, Target perhaps had memories of how they were burned back in 2016 when they had announced their uh, bathroom policy uh, where people would be free to uh, use the bathroom of their choice, basically, that uh, coincided with their gender identity. And there was a huge backlash then. There was a massive boycott of Target. Their stock price took a huge plunge. The Wall Street Journal even did a uh, a review of what happened where the, the CEO had not been informed in advance of that decision and was not happy about it. So I think they realized, oops, you know, we can't just kowtow to the transgender movement. It might cost us money. And so I think that's what happened. The invisible hand <laughs> of the market does other things, right? It does work sometimes. So um, another, another quick issue. we got about two minutes left here. Uh, but the definition of gender, we know that has been... Uh, We've been debating this for a long time informally. Oxford Dictionary, which has been defining things formally for a long time, seems to have changed their definition of woman. What's what's happened there? Well, apparently this is um, only indirectly related to the transgender movement, although I'm sure there's an element of that. But yes. there, there were... Uh, people who were, uh, uh, there was a movement attacking the Oxford English Dictionary, which of course is the venerable British uh, dictionary, um, and as being sexist and using sexist language and sexist terminology and examples and so forth. And so they actually started a change.org petition about a year ago and got a number of um, signatures on that and apparently have responded to that with this change of definition. Now, I have to say with dictionaries, it's true that dictionary definitions do change over time because they're supposed to be based on usage. But I've never before heard of a dictionary definition being changed because of a petition. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and tell me, what, what was the change that was made? How, um, how are we defining woman now in Oxford? Well, uh, they are defining it uh, in non-sexist ways. So, for example... So, the examples. Uh, so, so, for example, uh, th- it is a person, a female who is married to a partner, not someone married to a man, for example. Okay. Uh, but they do include trans, a transgender woman as an example of the term also. So they're becoming inclusive. Becoming more inclusive and more politically correct. Yes. <laughs> so it will become increasingly hard to determine what actually is a woman, and the dictionary will no longer serve the purpose that the dictionary well, ironic, served, which I, is to tell us what things are. Yeah, ironically, conservatives have called it adult human female, the core definition of woman, have gotten in trouble with transgender activists for that. Well, shocking. More trouble down the road for sure. Peter Sprigg, thank you for joining us. On the other side of the break, we are going to talk to Ken Blackwell and get an update on the litigation surrounding the presidential election, what's going on in Pennsylvania and Georgia. Stay tuned on the other side. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. 
When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. Welcome back to the program. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Depending on your social media feed, the presidential election is either over a couple weeks ago and Joe Biden has won or Trump has won. And we just have to uh, discover that through the litigation that is currently underway. There are very different positions uh, on this issue and uh, strong opinions, to be sure. And it, to help us sort through this, I'm going to bring in Ken Blackwell, who is the Senior Fellow for Human Rights and Constitutional Government Governance at the Family Research Council. But for these purposes, he is a former Secretary of State in Ohio, and he knows elections. And he has been following this issue closely, and I think will be able to uh, help us out. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Joseph, good to be with you. Let me just start out by saying that I'm going to borrow from Lewis Carroll and his character Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the mainstream media uh, and Democrat operatives want us to go down a rabbit hole. Uh, look, she, Alice turned a phrase. It was curiouser and curiouser, which means that things are getting very, very strange. Uh, and I think that it's important that your listeners understand uh, that uh, we, we, we shouldn't rush through this. We, we, we have over 25 days to sort this out. Now, one state has certified the election yet, uh, and in some battleground states, some very strange things have happened. And it's underscored by a fundamental reality. Uh, Donald Trump... Uh, had very, very long coattails in this election. Republicans won more uh, chambers of state legislatures. They run a, a governorship. Uh, we closed the margin uh, that uh, Nancy Pelosi and her Democrats had in the House of Representatives, and we're in a position to protect the clear majority uh, uh, in the U.S. Senate. So what the mainstream media wants us to rush to this conclusion that Donald Trump had very, very long coattails, but no coat. And as Alice says, that is curiouser and curiouser. And so in Pennsylvania, what we're watching now is a situation where it is very clear that the state Supreme Court uh, the governor and his political operative secretary of state uh, violated the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution in Article 
two gives the power to set the schedule for elections uh, and establish the rules that will govern uh, when votes and how votes, what, which votes will be counted, to the state legislature, not to the su- state Supreme Court or the governor or the secretary of state. Uh, and so there is a very clear uh, violation of, constitu- of the Constitution and constitutional procedure, and they will win that case. But there have just been strange things to, that, that have happened, not only in Pennsylvania, but in, Ken, let me j- uh, in, in a number you know, of uh, the other battleground states. I, I want to jump in there and, and, and get some clarification. Let's assume that's all true in Pennsylvania, because I think what we've heard, and, and, and people have uh, a general understanding that the legislature was not involved in changing the election laws, and that's concerning. Let's assume the Supreme Court, the court system agrees. What are they going to do about that? What's what's the remedy in the event that the court says, yeah, you couldn't make that change? What does that well, mean practically? Absolutely. What, what, if they said the Constitution was violated, that kicks it back to the state legislature. The state legislature is empowered by the Constitution to name the electors that should be uh, an accurate reflection of the vote count. So the state legislature, other... it, it, the state legislature is empowered. To make that but that call. would require would that require the Supreme Court to invalidate the election, or would that mean they throw it, out enough votes? All the Supreme Court has to do is to say one that the governor had, and the state Supreme Court had no right to overturn the procedures, rules, and prerogatives and schedule of the state legislature. It then kicks it back to the body that is empowered to select the electors. But that's that's not only true. That's not only true for Pennsylvania. Joseph, let me just make it very clear to your listeners that this has to be prosecuted on two tracks, uh, in the courts and before legislative bodies. In in Michigan, they should call for special hearings. They should convene and they should look at the facts. In Wayne County and Detroit, there was curiouser and curiouser, very strange activities. Transparency was non-existent. The vote count stopped. Uh, and then you didn't have bipartisan uh, sets of eyes on, on the process. And miraculously, uh, a, a substantial lead that Trump had going into the wee hours of the morning were, were radically reversed. And, and so the State Supreme, excuse me, the state legislature in Michigan can call those hearings if there's substantial evidence that there was wrongdoing and, and a corruption in the process. They too can make the call. Look, it does us no good to elect clearly Republicans in state legislatures if they're going to cower, you know, in the most consequential election in our 244-year history. 244 years of constitutional governance is on the line right now. Now, I I think there's an understanding of the significance of the moment. Now, on the the coattail point that you brought up earlier, what would you say to the idea that, well, the results of this election were really, though, people didn't want – people may have been tired of Trump's personality – uh, they also didn't want the policies of the left. Do you think there's anything to this idea that there was this kind of joint repudiation of just Trump's style, but also a, a, a rejection of the what the left would like to do policy-wise that the voters handed down, and they would just kind of thought critically through it and said, we don't want that, but we also don't want that. Do you think that might explain uh, why Trump would lose in a year when Republicans generally did quite well? I think that's a that's a, a narrative and an interpretation that the left and the mainstream media would want us to buy into. But I start with you remember they projected a big tidal blue wave that that that, that wasn't a, a, a whimper, uh, and and that was that here was a mainstream media here were uh, uh, partisan pollsters that essentially said uh, that. There was a disconnect between Trump uh, and and the voters of this country. Trump got seven point, excuse me, seventy two plus million voters that came his way. 
it, it, it is just curious that he won across the country with the exception of some battleground states in big urban areas that have a history of political corruption. And I think that this, this, this case must be prosecuted. It must be prosecuted politically, and it must be prosecuted in the courts. And I think that the, that's the only way. You know, there's their old saying, trust but verify. I've turned that around. It is verify, verify, and then you can trust. I think that's wise, and I, I think it's fortunate that that's about that that is what is happening right now, and that's why we have a judicial system so that people can't be defeated by a media that doesn't like them complaining because there's a justice system that will look at the facts and what they are. Now, last question for you. Tell us, when is this going to be resolved? What kind of timeline are we working on? How long are we going to be wondering about these lawsuits? Well, again, let me start off. Not one state has certified their results yet. Uh, the electors meet on December the 14th, and so we have runway in front of us. There is no reason to try to force this president to throw in the towel prematurely. We need to eyeball this process. We need to kick the tires. We, in fact, need to take Alice up on her turn of phrase. This is curiouser and curiouser. It's getting extremely strange. I think uh, Sidney Powell and her folks who are questioning uh, the, the, the integrity of uh, Dominion and the voting system uh, have to be able to make their case. But I tell you, in the end, this is not about statisticians. This is not about just about courts. This is about the political will of those elected officials in state legislatures who, in fact, have been put there by the same people who voted for the president. Uh, and my, my advice is to call your state legislator in those uh, battleground states where this is being flushed out, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, etc., and say, do your job. Make sure that this is a transparent process. Verify, 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 and then we can trust the result. Ken Blackwell, thank you so much for your time and your diligence and your uh, just understanding of these issues. It really does help us understand how to follow uh, the news that we see and, in some cases, how not to follow that news. Thank you so much. Now, we're going to transition in the last few minutes we have here uh, because – one of the, the, the conversation that we just had with Kent Blackwell and the reason why people are skeptical of the media in part is because uh, the, the, the caste system that exists politically, and we often think about it rural and, uh, and urban divides that we have in America, it isn't just rural and urban. And a recent article and some research from Bloomberg that reveals how different industries and different professions contributed to the presidential candidates and what that means about about the information that we're getting from these industries and to bring to have that conversation with us i'm going to welcome in brett kylan who is the vice president at frc action brent welcome to the program thanks joseph good to be with you yeah, well, tell us, we, we've just got a few minutes here, but I think it's really important for people to hear this. When you read this Bloomberg article and saw the disparity among industries, you know, we have university professors, we have high-tech employees, we have members of the media, where are they giving their money, and what do you think we can learn from that? Absolutely, Joseph. So at every election, right, we hear uh, this party and that party and this candidate and that candidate say, you know, I, I stand with the people. My opponent stands with uh, big money, the elites, that sort of thing. But but where um, industries are, are giving their donations and to which party is just really informative, which is why this Bloomberg in information is just so insightful for us. And they broke down the online platforms, uh, the, the giving from ActBlue on the left, WinRed on the right, and uh, they broke it down by employer. And occupation. And, and a couple of things that really stuck out here are if you look at the employers uh, first, uh, look at the tech industry uh, with Google. Uh, they, they found uh, 6,900 
uh, donors of those 97% of those people who, who gave and said Google was their employer, 97% gave to Joseph Biden. Facebook had 3,300 donors. 97% of them gave to Biden. Uh, Apple had had 5,100 donors, 92% for Biden. With the Amazon giving, it was it was 80% for Joseph Biden. If you if you look over at the uh, the uh, higher education uh, landscape, University of California had had 12,000 donors. Uh, 94% of them gave to Biden, and that percentage held uh, among about 16, 17 other uh, universities that they found. Um, if you look over on the, the Trump side, which industries or employers were most friendly on the Trump side, uh, interesting, a very different set of, uh, of uh, employers. The, the top was actually the New York Police Department, 800 donors, 69% of them gave to Trump. Trump did well with the military, uh, the U.S. Marines. He got 66 percent of those donations. And then interesting, uh, Walmart. Trump actually won that uh, 52 percent to, to 48 percent. And then just real quick, if you look at the occupation, so kind of grouping those employers together uh, among professors, um, Biden won 94 percent of those uh, editors. He won 94 percent. Lawyers, he won 88 percent. And teachers, 84 percent. The occupations where Trump did well were uh, homemakers, 96 percent, uh, people who said they were disabled or disability, 93 um, percent. And then um, groups like ranchers and, and welders, truckers, construction workers and police officers, he did anywhere. Trump won anywhere from 73 uh, percent to 84 percent of those donations as well. Brent, I think there's another thing to learn here. You pointed out homemakers, and 96% mm -hmm. of homemakers gave money to Trump as opposed to Biden. And I think really what's what's hiding there is probably it's it, we heard a lot about the shy Trump vote. I think that is the shy mm -hmm. Trump uh, financial contribution because I think a lot of men who didn't want to disclose where they worked or make public the fact that they made a contribution, did it in their wife's name. And if I had to guess, I think that's why the homemaker demographic was 94 to 6, Trump versus Biden, because mm -hmm. there really is no – there's no backlash if you're a business owner and you give money to Biden. If you give money to Trump, there could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and two other things, uh, real quick, Joseph, that stuck out. You know, we've heard for decades, you know, the Democrat Party says we're the party of the working class. GOP is the party of the rich. If you look at this analysis, um, that really does not pan out with these numbers. And I think the other thing that really stuck out is we've seen unprecedented tech censorship this year. When when you're looking at uh, industry where, where 97 percent of those uh, donors are, are giving to one candidate, um, you've either got a lot of employees who are giving to the other candidate but are afraid to say so, or you don't have a lot of thought diversity from an industry that says it, it really, um, really uh, highly values diversity. Brett Kylan, thank you for joining us. I also want to point out teachers gave 84% to Biden, professors 94%. So just keep that in mind as you think about education. Folks, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being part of the program, we look forward to standing with you again tomorrow as we continue to be faithful in whatever God has called us to today. Don't be afraid. God is real. Uh, whatever happened today is not permanent. He's always in charge. You don't need to be afraid because God is not. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.